Hello, welcome to episode 15 of my Waterford History podcast, continuing with the history of Waterford in 20 objects. Today we're going to have a thing that most people know about, and the first time I ever went to Regulus Tardy Museum years and years ago was the thing that excited me the most, and that's of course the 15th century cannon. When I remember when I first saw it, being slightly disappointed by its size, but then as you get older, you get more and more excited by its age. I mean, this thing's properly, properly old, and early firearm, and it's an amazing thing to have in the city. So um, we're going to be talking about that today, and Waterford's position in the consolidation of the Tudor crown and a few more episodes on the Tudors coming up. Hope you enjoy. Waterford's status was as, as the linchpin, the anchor between England and Ireland. And because of that, Waterford was very strongly attached to the crown. Of course, that meant they were also beneficiaries of the half-crown. Cannon, 1495. The late Middle Age was a time of opportunity for cities. There was money to be made and spent, a renaissance to be indulged in, and around the corner trade with new worlds the Normans couldn't have dreamed of. But cities were still walled, and the power of the landed class could, in a stroke, destroy the prosperity that trade had built up. Waterford was severely mauled by the Lapuers in 1345, although in that case revenge was swift and brutal, and it would be threatened many more times by that clan and their erstwhile allies, the O'Driscolls of Cork, in the coming years. The sometimes surrounding anarchy the city had to contend with in the late medieval period was at least in part caused by the fact that the King of England was pursuing much the same goals in France. With the Hundred Years' War at an end, the rulers of England turned on each other during what became known as the Wars of the Roses. By the time Henry VII established his tenuous claim on the throne in 1485, the rid of the king barely ran outside the pale. The attitude of the Waterford people in these troubled times was to support the king, whoever the king happened to be. It was a policy of self-interest that no doubt would have appealed to Henry VII's more pragmatic, some might say, cynical view of what it meant to be a king. Jack Burchill gives the award-winning walking tours of Waterford City and explains the political background to the siege of the city in 1495. There's a kind of a geopolitical background to this in the late 15th century, late 1400s. England emerged in the War of the Roses, a terribly destructive uh, multi-sided, very complex and civil war for supremacy and, the, and the, the throne of England. Henry VII, he won that war, but he was constantly terrorised by fears of a, a, a succession battle, as was his son, Henry VIII. Henry VIII's long succession of wives and all this and was a quest for a legitimate male heir that would secure the Tudor dynasty. And several people were, were claiming the throne of England, Two of them in particular laid siege to Waterford, Perkin Warbeck and Lambert Simnel. And both attacked the city, and on both occasions, Waterford remained steadfastly loyal to Henry VII. And uh, by remaining loyal to Henry VII, that secured his linchpin in Ireland, and it gained the city great kudos and political capital at the court in London. So that's where the background to that is. Orbs intact. Having stood siege twice and remained loyal to Henry, the Orbs intact man at war was, was, was the title he granted. There was no shortage of challengers to Henry's throne. They found support, of course, amongst the disloyal Irish and an ideal embarkation point at Waterford. Except Waterford was never prepared to play ball. In 1495, one of these challengers, Perkin Warbeck, arrived at the city, equipped with the newfangled invention of cannon to force the city's hand. Eamon, I think anybody who's ever been to Reginald's Tower, where this cannon was originally as a kid, this is one of the ones that excited you, of course, because it was a gun. And one of the things that that strikes you immediately is that this isn't just a cannon like you might have in the park. This is really old and presumably correspondingly where. Yeah, it is. It's it's the oldest cannon in Ireland. And I suppose every schoolboy knows in 
1492, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue and discovered, of course, America, or Europe, well, Europeans discovered America. And that's, this is the type of cannon that was on the Nina when Christopher Columbus discovered America. So that's the period, is four, but the 1490s. And it's, it's very small, it's only about four foot long, and it's, if, if it were complete. And it's on the rail, in other words, on the side of a ship. And it's used for firing stones or bits of metal at an enemy ship or at an enemy town or whatever you're trying to attack. Um, they didn't fire explosives in the strict sense, but it was used in gunpowder. They, 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 they threw out either stone or, or metal. We, we don't know what, what it was. And it was dredged up from out near Reginald's Tower in, in 1901. And we think because of its date, um, there was a, a siege of Waterford in 1495, so it's around the time of Christopher Columbus, that we know that siege had guns because there's a recording of it, and they said there was it was they were, the, the Reginald's Tower. They were firing guns at Reginald's Tower, small cannon like this one from their ship, from the ship, and that there were guns in Reginald's Tower firing back at them. So it's from that siege in 1495, and the really interesting of that siege in 1495 is the first artillery siege of an Irish city. So it's really significant, like in in that sense. And you can see how small it is, and you can see the bar here protruding from the end. You see, it swivels, that moves, and that's what was stuck on the side of the ship. So they could, the, the men on the ship then could turn it left, right, and uh, aim it. Now, aims and these these cannon, like even cannon, even hundreds of years later, wasn't very accurate, not like today. So it wasn't, it wasn't particularly accurate. But you see these bands on it here, big yes. st- heavy steel bands going all up along it. Do you know the way a barrel is made and it's got those steel bands, wooden bands? Well, this is kind of using the same technology. You know, they found it difficult to make hollow tubes properly. So they, kind of, they, they started off by making them with strips of metal and then fusing those together. But to keep it all intact and to stop it blowing apart when the explosives were put in, they made these bands like you'd make them. And that's why we use the expression, a barrel of a gun, because it's made like a barrel with these, with these hoops on it. And presumably, I suppose it, it probably took a certain amount of bravery to fire this thing. It oh, they were very dangerous, yeah. Yeah, you were very dangerous. The piece here is missing because it obviously rusted away, but there, you put the charge into a piece down here at the end and then you, you set a light and I'm sure you ducked for cover then while you waited for it to discharge itself because even like even 19th century cannon or all cannon I suppose are dangerous but they were very dangerous to people using them. Yeah. In response to the depredations of the O'Driscolls, Waterford had been given a new charter by King Edward IV in 1461. Edward had two sons which he left to the care of his brother, the infamous King Richard III. Richard probably had them killed but there were no bodies, opening the door to a series of pretenders in the early years of Henry VII's reign. We need to maybe get an idea of who was it was laying the siege of Waterford. Yes, King Henry the the Seventh of England. That's the first Tudor king of England. There was two pretenders to his throne, and King Henry the Seventh, uh, one of these pretenders, Perkin Warbeck, he had the support of the Duchess of Burgundy and the Holy Roman Emperor at the time, and he had mercenary troops. And he was coming here. He had a lot of support in Ireland here, and he was coming here on the pretense that he was king of England and he wanted the support of Waterford, but they weren't willing to give it to him. So he, he laid siege to the city for 11 days. And very cleverly, we must remember at that time when the siege was going on, the St. John's River, as we all know it now, are called the Pill. That used to run down at the side of Regent's Tower, down along where the Mall is today, where the Bishop's Palace is in Waterford Crystals, the Tower Hotel. That was all river. And the ships came up there and they were bombarding Reginald's Tower and the town wall from, from in there now, not on the present quay, because remember, that tide goes up and down, and it's the second fastest flowing river in Europe, so it'd be very hard to lay siege to a city from the shore. And, and what, the, what the city council did at the time, they were very proactive at the time, they went out what we now call the Tramor Road, even the Tramor Road didn't exist at the time, and they blocked the river. 
the pill or the St John's River out there and then when the tide went out on the on the river shore naturally the water that was left in the in the St John's River at Reginald's Tower dropped because it all ran out into the shore went down river when the when the tide dropped because there's a huge tidal difference there in the in the river shore and so when the tide went out and no fresh water coming in from, from, from we'd say, the Tramore area, filling the river, the St. John's River. The ships got stuck in the mud. And then what, what the, the people of Waterford then, of course, the fellows, of course, got stuck. They were easily able to pick them off with their bows and arrows and with small guns. And those who escaped or tried to get off the ship were captured. They got stuck in the mud, a lot of them drowned. The others were captured. And we know they're brought up to Broad Street and had their heads chopped off. And, of course, the water crowd thought this was really great and they were really brave. And then they stuck all their heads on pikes all around the city walls to show what happens to traitors to the King of England. And then they got a good summer, which was rare enough, I'm sure. And they got a really good summer. And, of course, you can imagine now, like if you left a piece of meat out, well, the heads were exactly the same thing. What happened was then, these are all dripping blood, of course, and everything, wasps and bees and flies and mice and rats and birds started gathering around them and the whole place just became a mess. And so they paid some of Wattie to, to go out and take down all the heads and he just literally threw them out into what's now the Mall into that area because I said that was a river and it's called, it was called the Ditch anything like it was called a Ditch in the Middle Ages and apparently at the time then the, the records tell us that that area used to be known as Traitor's Ditch because all the heads of these traitors to the King of England were thrown in there so it's a great story really it's a real bit of insight into history that you don't normally get for an Irish city It was out of this quintessentially medieval act of resistance that Watford gets its motto and underlined the fact that the city saw its future in good relations with the king, whoever the king happened to be. He was the man in power, and Waterford was very, very studious in presenting and preserving their own privileged status as the English entry point into Ireland. Today we think of the way to Ireland is through Dublin Airport or through Shannon Airport. Well, at that time in this 15th century, the, 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 the entry to Ireland was London, to Bristol, to Waterford, to Dublin. And there was no route from London up to the Midlands and across North Wales. So Waterford's status was as, as the linchpin, the anchor between England and Ireland. And because of that, Waterford was very strongly attached to the Crown. Of course, that meant they were also beneficiaries of the half-crown. It was very, very profitable for Waterford to have this status and to have, for instance, the right to bring the wines, the butlers brought their wines through Waterford. The butlers made a pretty penny and the king did well, but Waterford Port and Waterford Corporation and the Waterford tax base also did very well. Waterford had much more contact with Bristol than it would, let's say, with Cork and would have seen their political future being tied into Bristol and London. And even in the, as the 1540s, the number of ships leaving Bristol for Ireland, more than half of all Bristol ships coming to Ireland in the 1540s were coming to Waterford. The rest of the country combined produced less than half the trade links. So that's, that's where the money was being made. And Waterford City then, of course, was greatly rewarded for that because a Waterford merchant, John Wise, had told the King of England, of course, about Park and Morbeck and had spied on Park and Morbeck. And the King of England then, King Henry VII, said that John Wise could send his son, William, to England to be reared with the royal family. And he was reared with with the son, with the king's son, Henry. Now, Henry was only the second son of King Henry VII, but King Henry VII's eldest son, Arthur, died. And Henry, as we all know, the famous Henry VIII, who had the six wives. And now you had the really unusual and most, most unusual situation. An ordinary commoner from Waterford, not even an Englishman, from Waterford, was now the best friend, the boyhood friend of King Henry VIII. 
And, and William Wise, of course, got a huge number of gifts from the king, and he got the lovely sword um, we have here from King Henry VIII and the cap of maintenance, the only piece of clothing of a medieval English king to survive in the whole world. And we have it here in Waterford because William Wise was the friend of the king and he gave him all these things as a thank you for the support of Waterford. Is it right that Waterford's motto comes from that period? It does. It comes from the period of Henry VII, um, Orbs Intacta, Manet, Waterfordia. The city of Waterford remains untaken. And kind of following on from the, 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 the parchment, it does underline that, you know, while some of the Irish lords were on the side of Park and Warwick, Waterford City was... Always right. Yeah, yeah, and again, it's all got to do with trade. It's like economics, like now it is. It's, you know, outside your bread is buttered on. And why wouldn't they support England? Do you know? And why wouldn't they be friendly with the King of England? He would compensate them if their ships were stolen or if somebody didn't pay debt through his courts, they could go and they get compensation. And he protected their ships on the high seas, if possible. And all our traders with England anyway. So it's just very important to them that they keep things going between England and Ireland. So it's a small cannon, but it tells, it tells quite a story, doesn't it? Oh, it tells, yeah. It's, it's, all of these things, museum objects really are of no interest. People just collect things because they're old. In, in some sense, that's not what we should be doing. I mean, we should certainly collect old things, but things like this are important. We should show things that tell stories. As I always say, every single piece in the museum has to have a biography. It has to have its story to tell. And the story that that tells is the story of loyalty to the King of England. I mean, I mean the Perkin Warwick thing is a huge thing in English history. You know, we were central to that story, Waterford was. And, of course, it tells you the whole thing about artillery sieges, the first artillery siege of an Irish city. So it's really important in, in terms of Irish history as well as English history and our connections with our neighbouring island. Having fought to save the throne of the dad, Waterford successfully negotiated a beneficial relationship with his son, Henry VIII, something not everyone in the 16th century could manage. 